your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 89. We sang that chorus this morning in really preparation for the message because I'm speaking today on the greatness of our God. Two weeks ago, we spoke on the personality of God. Last week, we spoke on the tri- triunity or the trinity of God. Today, we're talking about the greatness of God as found in the scripture. Follow in your Bibles as we read Psalm 89, beginning in verse 5. And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that, that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea, when the ways thereof arise, thou stillest them. Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. The heavens are thine. The earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. Uh, Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. Thou hast a mighty arm, strong in thine hand, and high is thy right hand. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne, Mercy and truth go before thy face. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In, the, in thy name shall they, they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm that exalts the name of our Lord. We thank you, Lord, because you are such a great God. And I pray that we might be people who praise you for your greatness. Help us today as we survey the scriptures and see all that you have to say about your greatness. Well, probably not all of it, Lord, because it's hard to cover it all today. But we ask that you would help us to get a picture of the greatness of our God. Work in our hearts in accordance to your will. In each one of us, you know where all of us stand. You know all of our needs. You know our heart. And you know, Lord, those who maybe have not trusted Jesus. May today be the day they do that. Give enablement to preach the message, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The greatness of our God is evident everywhere you look. If your eyes are open, and you will see. Let's begin with our human body. The human body speaks of the greatness of the Lord. Psalm 139, the psalmist said this in verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. Consider the circulatory system of our body. The heart is a pump that God has made that works through muscles. And those muscles contract and relax according to an electrical impulse that God gives, and that's centered, it's really a built-in pacemaker, you might say, that God puts in our heart. And that electrical impulse makes our heart contract and relax and contract, and and, uh, it just pumps the blood. 
All right, from the, from the heart, there are ve- certain vessels. There are arteries, veins, and capillaries. I read where the arteries, veins, and capillaries, if you put them all together, there are 60,000 miles of vessels in our bodies. I mean, that's almost unbelievable, but it's true. The veins bring the blood to the right side of the heart, and then the pulmonary arteries, arteries carry the blood to the lungs for oxygen. Then pulmonary veins carry uh, oxygen-rich blood to the left side of the heart, and then the aorta carries blood from the left, si- left side of the heart to the body through branches and arteries. Then the capillaries carry oxygen and nutrients to the body and carries away carbon dioxide and waste products that, that's produced from, that comes from the cell, the tissue cells. So all of this is happening in the circulatory system of our body. And then after that, then the veins take it back to the heart and, uh, and the heart does the thing all over again. And of course, in addition to that circulatory system of our body, you're talking about the greatness of God, you can see that just by in our body. You add to that all the other systems of our body. Altogether, I think there are 11 of them. There's the digestive system. There's the renal system, which is your urinary ability to pass urine, the renal system. The endocrine system are glands that create and secrete hormones that carry messages to the body that tells it what to do and when to do it. The integumentary system is the outer barrier that protects the body. That's your skin, your nails, and your hair. That's that system. And then there's the immune system. If it wasn't for our immune system, all of us would be sick. But we have an immune system provided by God, developed by God. Then there's the muscular system. And the muscular system, of course, the muscles attached to the bones, which is the skeletal system. And then there's a nervous system. And all of you know, if your nerves get messed up, it messes up not only you, but people around you. So nervous system is very important. Also, there's the reproductive system. That's why all of us are here today. And then there's the respiratory system. And you add all these together and you realize the body itself is something that should cause us to say, wow, our God is great. But then let's consider outside the body. Let's consider all the food that we eat. That also is produced by God. There's a great variety. I've often gone out to a restaurant, maybe to a place where, or salad bar or something like that, and uh, you're just amazed at the variety of God, things that God has made. There's such a great variety in fruits and in vegetables and meat and grain, and then there's the water that God gives. It all comes from God. Then you look outside of that, not just uh, our bodies and the food that we eat, but then all the vegetation in the world. Think of the beautiful trees that, that are out there, all different varieties and, and different kinds and different climates, the trees and how they stand upright. And so they'll, some of them will be 100 feet high or more, and, it's, and they're so heavy, and they're standing upright, all supported by a root system that goes down in the ground, and evolution could not do any of that. Evolution, by the way, is an absolute lie. There's no truth at all in it. <laughs> And that is supported from the scripture and also anything you can observe. Also the animal world. There's the great variety of land animals and water animals and flying fowl that God has made. No way that came from evolution. And then there's the heavens above us. The Bible says in Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. 
Psalm 97, verse 6, the seventh says, The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. So the heavens declare the glory of God, the righteousness of God, and we might also add the goodness of God. <laughs> Isn't God good? I was commenting to my wife the other day, she had coming back from a doctor's appointment, and the sky was so beautiful. Have you noticed lately that there's so many clouds in the sky and they're so, they're so pretty? God does that, and he does it in a background of blue. I mean, the sky is blue. So, so beautiful. Only God could do that, and he is the one who did it. The Bible says that, there, that we should behold all those things, and we should praise the God. Praise God. Is there any wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 14, verse 1, and Psalm 53, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In preparation for the message today, I did a study on the many times that God is referred to in the Bible as great. You'll see that in your bulletin. If you'll get out your bulletin, it's a message in and of itself, but I've, I, I did this study and I typed it all up for you so you could see it. Our great God, there's many times in the scripture that God is referred to as great. There's one time in Psalm 104 verse 1, God says, it says God is very great. And then I looked at the things that are great about God. His name is great, and I gave you text so you can look it up later. His name is great, his glory is great, his power is great, his love is great, his kindness is great, his grace is great, his salvation is great, his mercies are great, his faithfulness is great, his works are great, his anger and indignation are great. And when you see all that, then you add to the fact that God is called a great king, the great high priest, and the great shepherd. Everything about God is great. And the fact is that that king and that high priest and that shepherd is the one who ministers for us. He rules over everything. For the child of God, he intercedes for us as the great high priest. And as a child of God, he leads us as, as the shepherd. He's the great shepherd. God is so great. So let's consider some things this morning about the greatness of our God. First of all, I want to mention this. Our God is, our great God is eternal. Now to understand God, you have to believe that he is eternal. I, I won't say that you can understand that because I can't understand it. Forever and ever, that's hard for us to comprehend. But in the past, forever and ever, God always has existed. He never, he never had a beginning. Forever and ever. We can't wrap our minds around, around that, but we believe it. It's true because the Bible says it's true. So God is forever and ever. He is eternal. His existence cannot be measured by time. Look at Psalm 90, verses 2 and 4. Psalm 90, verses 2 and 4. It says, just a minute, I'll read it. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So before there was a universe, God existed forever and ever. He was God. Verse 4, for a thousand years in thy sight is but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. So God is, is greater than time. He, exist, he, he existed before time. And uh, time really can't measure the greatness and eternality of God. Also, he's above time. Psalm 57, verse 15, or Isaiah 57, verse 15 says, For thou sayest the high, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. He inhabits eternity. 
We inhabit space and time. He inhabits eternity. So he's outside of space and time. Uh, Also, he's the author of time. He's the author of it. The Bible says in Hebrews 1 verse 2, His Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And if you would look it up, the word worlds there is ages. The Lord made the ages. He's the one that made time. So outside of time, he inhabits eternity. And then there was a time when he created the heavens and the earth. And so he actually made time. And so he is an eternal God. 1 Timothy 1 verse 17 sounds now unto the king eternal, immortal, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He's the eternal God. He made time and he rules time. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So he's the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and on his shoulders are all responsibility of rulership in this universe. God is a great God. What a comfort to believers. For us to know that our God is eternal. Friends may fail, loved ones may die, and circumstances may change, but he will endure forever. He will always be our friend. He will always be our supplier. He will always be our defender. He will always be our refuge because he exists. He abides forever. Psalm 102 says it like this in verse 12. It says, But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generation. Verse 19, for he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary from heaven, did the Lord behold the earth. And then verse 25 says, of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, they shall, all of them shall wax gold, old as a garment, as a vesture thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. Talk about climate change, here's climate change. Yes, things change. Who changes them? Not man. God does. God says they'll wax old like a garment. And then it says in verse 27, But but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. God endures forever and ever. What a comfort to us to know that our God never fails. He's always with us. Some of our loved ones might pass on, but our Lord doesn't. Some of our friends might fail, but the Lord doesn't. He is the eternal God. And so thankful, thank, thank the Lord that he, is that he is great and he is eternal. Another thing about his greatness is this. Our great God is unchangeable. That means he doesn't change. A word that's used sometimes is the word immutable. He doesn't change. Lamentations chapter 3 uh, tells us that. And it talks about the faithfulness of our Lord. Let me look it up for you. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So our Lord is great. He doesn't change. The Bible says in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1, verse 17, every good gift. And every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God does not change. 
And so he has always been great. He is great, and he will always be great. He's always been eternal. He is eternal, and he will always be eternal. Our God is a great God. Another thing about the greatness of our God, our great God is perfect. Now, by perfect, we mean you can't improve on him. In fact, if God is perfect, if he changed at all, what would it be? He can't get more perfect. So if he's perfect, if he changed at all, he would be less than perfect. And he doesn't change. Thank the Lord for that. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Our God is perfect. He is what what God is supposed to be. He'll always do what God is supposed to do. He is perfect. I found it interesting in the scripture that many things are referred to God, about God are referred to as perfect. His work is perfect. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. His, his work is perfect. His knowledge is perfect. Job 36, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge. God's knowledge is perfect. His way is perfect. Psalm 18, verse 30, as for God, his way is perfect. His law or his word is perfect. The Bible says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. His also his will is perfect. Romans 12, and, I, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We try to get young people to determine the, what the will of God is in their life. And they need to understand, all of us need to understand, the will of God for your life is perfect. You will never take second best by doing what God wants you to do. It is perfect. It can't be improved upon. So why would you want anything better than that? Why would you want anything else? Because there's nothing better. The word of God, the will of God is perfect for us. And so his will is perfect. His gifts are perfect. James 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And so everything about God is perfect. All we need is found in our great God. And believers in Christ, therefore, we are, the Bible says, complete in him. If he is perfect and we are in him, then we have perfection in Christ. And so when God looks at us, why would he accept us? Why would he let us go to heaven? It's not because we have less sins than somebody else. It's we have to be perfect. And we're in Christ, so we are counted as perfect because we're put in Christ and he clothes us with his righteousness and we're accepted in the beloved. We're complete. For him, in him, the Bible says in Colossians, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead body and ye are, uh, bodily and ye are complete in him. So the Christian is complete. You have what you need to be accepted by a holy God. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to your account. And so our God is perfect. Our God is also something else, and that is he's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. As I've said on many occasions, I got this from a professor many years ago. He said, he said men, and it was all men in the class, I believe. It was, it was a, in, in seminary. And he said, men, I want to tell you something. There's no such thing as a God-forsaken place. You know, we often say, wow, this is a God-forsaken place. There is no such thing because God is everywhere. God is everywhere. Now, it doesn't say God is everything. God is everywhere. The tree is not God. The moon is not God. 
The Son is not God, but God is everywhere. And so he inhabits eternity, and he's everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 5, says, says this, Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whether shall I go from thy spirit, or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I send up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Yes, God's in hell. Why? Because God is everywhere. And Satan doesn't rule hell. God rules hell. And so he's everywhere. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, in other words, trying to get away from God, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. And so the Lord is everywhere. Jeremiah said it like this in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 4. Am I a God that hath that at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Now that's a warning to us. That is, you cannot hide from God. Jonah was a believer and he tried to hide from God, but he couldn't do it. God told him to go to Nineveh and preach. But Jonah got in the ship to go to Tarsus to flee from the presence of the Lord. How foolish, Jonah, for you to try to do that. You can't get away from God. So we need to understand that. We can't get away from God. An unbeliever needs to understand that. And that is you can't get away from God. But it's also a comfort that he is always with the believer. The Bible says it like this in Matthew 28, from 20, verse 20. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6 says, Be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will ne never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And so you can't get away from God. He is everywhere. So God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. That's a wonderful thing to know about our great God. And then there's another thing about God. And that our, is our God, our great God is omniscient. Now, omniscient just means this. He knows everything. You can't teach God anything. You're not so special that you learn something that you can relate to God and tell him. No, God knows everything. And uh, God doesn't uh, learn things. He doesn't learn from man's ability to do all this technology that he has. What happens is God knows all about it and God designed it and God just pulls back the veil and lets man discover something. And man gets all proud that he's discovered something and the Lord says, no, I just let you see it. I just let you see it. And can you just, no, you can't imagine. I shouldn't say that. Can you imagine? Because you can't. But there's so much that God has not let us know about. We try to envision what it would be like to be in a glorified body and to be out there with the Lord and to rule and reign with him a thousand years on this earth and we're in glorified body and the people who inhabit the earth are in mortal bodies and we wonder what we can do. Can we go from this place to this, that place uh, a thousand miles away in a few seconds? Very possible. Can we walk through a wall? Well, that's very possible because Jesus did in his glorified body. So what can we do? We don't really know. But God will let us know sometime. But there's some things that God has not let us know. But God knows everything. God knows it all. 
God's knowledge is all-inclusive. It involves the material world. Job chapter 28 verse 24 says, He looketh to the ends of the earth and seeth under the whole heaven. He sees everything. It involves the animal world. Matthew 10 verse 29, The sparrows, and not one of them shall fall to the ground without your father. God knows when a sparrow dies. God knows when you're driving down the road and you hit a bird that flies in front of you. You say, oh, I killed a bird. God knows about that. God knows everything. God knows things that happen when nobody's around to observe it. God observe it, observes it. He knows everything about the animal world. God knows everything about the spirit world of the dead. God knows that. Job 26 verse 6 says, hell, hell is naked before him. In other words, it's open. Proverbs 15, verse 11, hell and destruction are before the Lord. Luke 16, you remember that? Luke 16 tells about the rich man and Lazarus. And God says, in hell, the rich man lifted up his eyes in torment. We couldn't see that, but God saw it. And God says, here's what happened when the rich man and Lazarus died. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, a place of rest, but the rich man went to hell. He was tormented in the flames, and he cried for a drop of water to cool his tongue. He also cried and said, Father Abraham, send somebody back to tell my brothers that they won't come here. And people in hell don't want you to come to hell. There'll be no parties in hell. There'll be no get-togethers in hell. Hell's a place of burning forever and ever and ever. But who knows about that? God knows about it. God sees all that. You can't hide from the Lord. So God sees the spirit world of the dead. He also sees all of mankind uh, and everything about him. Psalm 33. I want to read that passage to you. Psalm 33, uh, verses 13 to 15. It says this, The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. But the Lord sees everything. He looks from heaven and sees all of mankind. All the minute details of our personal lives is known by the Lord. Psalm 139 tells us that. and says in verses, verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising and understandest my thought afar off. So God knows what you're doing all the time. He knows when you lay down. He knows when you sit down. He knows when you rise up. He knows what you think. He knows what you think before you think it. God knows all those things. Thou compass my path and my lying down art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. God knows everything you say to a friend, to an enemy, to a loved one. God knows everything you say. God knows everything you say in your heart to God. God, why did you do this? God knows all about that. God knows everything about you. God knows it all. And so the Lord is the one who knows all. Verse 15, verse 16 says, My substance was not hid from, me, from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Figurative language which the psalmist is talking about a baby in the womb. God knows all that's going on there. Who is it that's forming that baby? God is. 
So when the abortionist comes in to, to destroy that baby in the womb, what's he doing? He's saying, God, we don't like what you're doing. We're going to change it. That's bold, but that's done multiple times all over this world every day. And they're actually fighting against God because God is the one that's forming the baby in the womb. God has a purpose for that baby. God equips that baby for the way that he wants that child to grow up to be an adult and gives it ability, abilities to be used for his glory. God does all that. God knows what he's doing, and yet the abortionist comes in and tries to change all of that. God says, I know everything. I know what's going on in the womb. Proverbs 4, or 5, verse 21 says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. Matthew 10, verse 30, But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Now, for some of us, the Lord has to do some subtracting. It was different than it was it used to be. <laughs> but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Also, all possible events under all possible circumstances is known by God. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, the Lord says to Chorazin and Bethsaida, if, thy, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in, in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. What's that say? That says God knows what if. God says, if Tyre and Sidon, who I destroyed, had the mighty works done in them that were done in you, two cities, they would have repented. God knows what they would have done. Matthew chapter 11, verse 23, Capernaum. He mentions Capernaum, and he says the same thing. If the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have repented. And then one of my favorite passages on this in Psalm is Psalm 81. And Psalm 81 is so clear about this. It says in verse 13, Oh, that my people have hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. They didn't, but he said, if they had of. I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters, of the, the haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. In other words, God says to Israel, if you would have only done what I told you to do, there would have been so much good coming from it. And God looks at us and says, I not only know what you did, I only know, not only know what I'm doing, but I know what I would have done if you would have obeyed me. And so we miss out on so much if we don't obey the Lord. God has blessings in store, but he's given us a free will, and we can make choices, and we make a choice. God says, I know what it would have been like if you had only obeyed me. And so God's a great God. All the possible events, all the possible circumstances, uh, God knows about those as well. Also, things that will come to pass, God knows. He's proved that through prophecies in the Old Testament. God has given prophecies and they've been fulfilled. But then there are many prophecies yet to come. God knows about the he new heaven new that's going to come down, rather the new Jerusalem that's going to come down out of, the, out of the third heaven and come down to that brand new earth and sit upon that brand new earth that he's going to make. I made a new heaven and a new earth, the Lord says. He knows about that. And so he tells us what's going to happen. Some people read those things and say, oh, that's just like fairy tales. No, 
God knows. And God knows that's going to happen someday. He's going to destroy this earth at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. And he's going to make a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And he's going to bring that new Jerusalem that's up in heaven now down upon that brand new earth. And that new Jerusalem, he even tells us the dimensions of it. It's almost 1,500 miles wide and long and high. What a city. And what an earth to set a city on something, uh, set that kind of city on the earth. God's going to do that. Uh, how do we know that's true? Because God knows. He has prophesied and told us things that have come to pass uh, to, the, to the very detail. God's done that. And he's going to do it in the future because God knows the future. God's knowledge should be a comfort to us as believers. God knows what is best for us. And so, young people, the best thing you can do is say, God, I know I don't know everything. Even though I'm a teenager and think I do, <laughs> I don't know everything, but I believe you. I trust you. When it comes to finding that spouse, you don't just make up your mind of who you like best, who's the best looking, and all that. You say, God, who would you have me marry? whether it be a young lady looking for a husband or a young man looking for a wife, he should say, Lord, I want your will, your perfect will. And God has the perfect one for you. And God has that. He knows about it. And so we need to know, we need to trust the Lord who knows what's best for us. He knows our needs. The Bible says he knows our needs before we even ask. Matthew 6, your father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. And then he doesn't say that, oh, God knows what you need before you ask him, so you don't need to ask. No, he, does, he says the opposite. He said, God knows what you need before you ask. And then he says this, after this manner, therefore, pray. And what's part of the pray? Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> God knows what we need before we ask, but he says, I want you to ask. I want you to ask. And so God wants us to ask. And it's such a comfort to know that God knows everything. God's knowledge is a warning to unbelievers. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, to, to know that God knows everything is a warning to you. He knows all about your sin. Psalm 139 says, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, the, the darkness hideth not from thee. Job 34 says, There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity shall hide themselves. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows about all your secret sins. You say, well, nobody was around. God was. Remember, God's everywhere. You say, well, the darkness, you know, nobody knew. It was dark. Nobody could see. Oh, yes. The Lord says the darkness is nothing to him. It's just like broad daylight to him. He sees everything. And so God is a great God and he knows all, and that should humble everybody to know I can't hide from the Lord. I can't say, well, God doesn't know about that. God does. God not only knows about your deeds, God knows about your thoughts. And God knows everything that's going on in your mind, and that's why the Lord says if a man lusts after a woman, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, how does God know he, that we do that? <laughs> he knows the mind. And so all those things are open before the Lord. He also knows your motives. He knows why you do something. 
God is the one who will examine us someday as Christians, and we might think, well, this person, I mean, they're, they're well-known, and they did so much, and everybody knows about it. Sure, they're going to get a lot, lot of rewards. We might be surprised when they stand before the Lord. They might not get those rewards. And some poor little widow lady who doesn't have much finances, and, and she lives on bare uh, necessities, you know, and, but she has a humble spirit, and she witnesses for Jesus, and she might have her more, more rewards than this well-known preacher because God knows the heart. God knows what, whether what we're doing is so that people will see it. God knows what we're doing so that we'll feel better about it. You know, I feel better my, about myself if I do this. No, we should do what we do because we know that we want to please our God. God knows those motives. He knows everything. He knows all the times that you, if you're not saved, He knows all the times that you've turned away His Son. He knows the times that somebody witnessed to you and you said no. He knows the time when you sat in a church service and heard the message and the invitation was, was given and you said no. He knows all those things. He knows all about it. God knows everything. So that should be very humbling to all of us. And then there's another thing about our great God. Our great God is not only omniscient, he's also omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. God is able to do all things that are, con that are, that are conformed to his, his nature, uh, his purpose, uh, his character. God can do all things that conform to that. Genesis 18, it says this. You remember Sarah had laughed when she heard that she was going to have a child. God said she'd have a child. Now here she's 90 years old. Are you kidding me? And she laughed. And she said, no, I didn't laugh. The Lord says, yes, you did. And the Lord says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jeremiah answers that question in Jeremiah 32, 17. He says, oh, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Nothing too hard for God. Job 42, verse 2 says, I know that thou canst do everything. Matthew 19, 26 the disciples says, who then can be saved? Because the Lord had said, for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get saved. Why? Because rich men usually are trusting in their riches. They don't need God. I mean, they have all this. They don't need God. And the Lord says, easier for a rich man, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. And the disciples says, well, then who can be saved? And the Lord said this, with God, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Aren't you glad of that? <laughs> Aren't you glad that you can be saved and that you were saved? You know your life. You know that none of you, I don't care who you are, none of you deserve to go to heaven. None of you, because we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserve to go to heaven. But we can go to heaven because of Jesus, I'm glad that salvation is not impossible for the Lord. He can save anybody. I'd love to give that illustration. I've done it recently. You know, the, the worst case scenario is the, the maniac Gadara. Such a bad guy. And the Lord saved him and changed his life. God can do that to anybody. But there are some things that God cannot do. The Bible says this in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. He cannot deny himself. He also cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2 says, God that cannot lie promised before the world began. He's talking about eternal life. 
God that cannot lie. God can't tell a lie. And he also can't be tempted with evil. James 1, 13, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God will never tempt you to sin. The devil will, your flesh will, the world will, but God won't. God cannot do that, and he won't do that. Knowing that God is omnipotent should encourage all of us to pray. We know Jesus as our Savior. There's nothing too hard for God. Can God save a person that's seemingly unsavable? Yes, he can. Can God heal a person who's racked with the disease? He can. He not always does, but he can. He knows the purpose. He knows everything. He knows what's best, but he can do it. There's no question at all God can do it. God can, God can heal a person that's eat up with cancer, and the, and the doctor says there's no hope. Can God change that? Sure he can. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Now, we shouldn't get mad at God if he doesn't because we know he knows all things and he makes no mistakes and we trust him. But God can do anything. And uh, so the Lord is omnipotent. That should encourage us to pray. Therefore, the Bible says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. And Philippians 1 says, be careful for nothing but in everything but prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to the Lord. Why can we boldly come to the Lord because we know he's able he can do anything God is a wonderful omnipotent God but then finally there's one other thing I'd like to say about the greatness of our God and that is our great God is incomprehensible Psalm 145 says it like this great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable you can't truly find out about the greatness of God. You can try as we've tried today, but you can't completely describe his greatness because it's incomprehensible. Romans chapter 11 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed to him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory and forever and ever. Amen. Yes, the Lord is an incomprehensible God. That means we can't fully understand everything about him. What we do know we can rejoice in as we've done today. But there's things about God that we don't know. Isn't that good? Because that means throughout all eternity we'll probably be learning about God. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I don't want to go to heaven. That would be boring. I mean, nothing, nothing bad goes on. It's all good all the time, and you're worshiping God, and, and they have the idea, you know, that you're just uh, an angelic creature, which is a lie. You never become angels. But they say that, and then they say, you know, that we'll just be strumming on harps, and, and they can't imagine. Now, let me tell you something. God is incomprehensible. And throughout all eternity, the Lord will just keep letting us know more things about him. Is it any wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 16, 11, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It'll never be dull when we get to heaven. In fact, there'll never be one moment in heaven that you're disappointed, and there'll never be one moment in heaven that you're bored. 
I never did like people saying I'm bored. I never didn't allow our children to say I'm bored. If they said they were bored, then I'd give them something to do so they wouldn't be bored. <laughs> but I really believe that if Christians really comprehended who we are, what God has done for us, what God has provided for us, what God is providing for us, and what God will provide for us, it is actually really a sin for us to be bored. <laughs> because we're in Christ. We're complete in Him. We have so much, and our God is so great. We shouldn't be bored. If nothing else, think about Him, and that'll take away the boredom. And so the Christian should rejoice today that our God is a great God. We've said this morning He's eternal, He's unchangeable, He's perfect, He's omnipresent, He's omniscient, He's omnipotent, and He's incomprehensible. The great God, this great God, humbled Himself, the Bible says, and He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. How much did this great God love you? He loved you so much that he sent his son to this earth. And his son became a man. He was the God-man. Why did he take upon himself human flesh? He did that so he could go to the cross and take your place. And on the cross of Calvary, as the perfect Lamb of God, spotless, never sinned, he took all the sin of the world, and God the Father laid it on Jesus, and he suffered, and he bled, and he died for us. That's why he cried on the, Christ, on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We deserve that. But Jesus took it for us. And then right before he died, he said, It's finished. That means I've paid it all. And then he was back in communion with his Father, and he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The payment's all been made. Your sin has been paid for. You don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. But you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God says, I've done it all for you. Now, there's one thing you need to do, and that is believe. Repent and believe. Recognize who you are, a sinner. You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve grace. But you believe that Jesus died for you. The great God of the universe loved us so much that he gave himself for us to die in our place. And then after he died, three days later, he rose from the grave as proof that it's all paid for. And so is there any wonder that Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The great God of the universe has provided a great salvation. And how shall you escape if you neglect that? And the answer is you won't. If you turn against Jesus... If you reject Jesus, you will one day go to hell. Why? Because you wouldn't receive the gift of the great God of the universe who gave his son for you. You must do that if you're going to go to heaven and live with him for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for reminding us of your greatness. We know, Lord, that if you would just tell us today, you would probably say, You've only scratched the surface, and surely we have. But it's surely enough to us to know, Lord, that you're a great God. And I pray that if there's somebody here who has not trusted Jesus, that they will reject the lie of the devil, and they'll say, Lord, I am a sinner, but I believe Jesus died for me, and I want him as my Savior. 
and I want to live for the great God of the universe. Help us, Lord, those who know Jesus, that we might be reminded again today that you're surely a God worth serving. And I pray that we might be faithful to do what you want us to do every day in our life. Work in hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.